One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. This is The Real Story from the BBC World Service with me, Chris Morris. And I'm in Knightsbridge, the upmarket area of London where many diplomatic missions are based, looking across the street at a fairly nondescript building with a series of small balconies. It's quiet here now, but just over a month ago, it was the focus of international media attention as the founder of WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, was taken away by British police. He'd been living inside this building, the Embassy of Ecuador, for nearly seven years after claiming asylum. The UK courts have now got to decide whether Mr Assange should be sent to Sweden to face charges of sexual assault, or to the United States, where he's been charged with conspiring with the former Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning to steal secrets from a government computer. It's all linked to the unprecedented release by WikiLeaks in 2010 of hundreds of thousands of US military reports about the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as American diplomatic communications. Assange has always been a controversial figure, But what's happened to the organisation he created? Does WikiLeaks matter? That's the question we'll attempt to answer today with our panel back in the studio. And here in the studio with me, I have Paul Stott, Research Fellow at the Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism at the Henry Jackson Society and a tutor at the Centre for International Studies and Diplomacy at SOAS, University of London. On the line from Rome is Stefania Morizzi. She's an investigative reporter based in Italy, a regular contributor to La Repubblica, and she's worked closely with Julian Assange and WikiLeaks since 2009. And from Lugano in Switzerland, Philip Di Salvo. He's a journalism lecturer at Università della Svizzera Italiana, who conducts research on hacking, whistleblowing and leaks. Welcome all of you to The Real Story. In a moment, I want to ask you a very simple question, whether you think WikiLeaks has been a force for good or harm. But before I do that, let's first remind ourselves of the impacts WikiLeaks made by releasing classified material onto the internet, including this video of an attack on a group of men in Iraq in 2007. What you hear is a conversation between a US attack helicopter with the callsign Crazy Horse 18 and the base command. Roger that. Uh, we have no personnel east of our position. All right, we'll be engaging. Anybody has element? We got an RPG. All right, we got a guy with an RPG. Coming to fire. Now he's behind the building. God damn it. Once you get on, just open up. Yeah, Roger. Yeah. I, um, I see your element. You got uh, well, about four Humvees uh, out along this. Uh, You're clear. All right, firing. Uh, line here. When the state line, uh, let me know when you have it. We'll shoot. Light them all up. Well, two of the 12 people killed in that incident were journalists working for Reuters news agency. And speaking later to the BBC, the WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange, defended its role in releasing classified material of this kind. These documents are of immense importance. They outline the deaths of some 109,000 people uh, over six years in the Iraq war. And precedent level of street-level detail uh, reports made by the US Army They exposed 15,000 civilian kills that were never previously reported, never known in the public domain. Uh, The reason that our organisation is successful uh, is unfortunately 
that other news organisations are not in a position because of the curtailments on the press uh, to actually protect sources and get information out. But the then US Defence Secretary Robert Gates rather predictably saw things very differently, arguing in 2010 that by releasing so much information, WikiLeaks was not just damaging government policy, it was putting lives at risk. We have a moral responsibility to do everything possible to mitigate the consequences for our troops and our partners downrange, especially those who have worked with and put their trust in us in the past who now may be targeted for retribution. So to our panel, that simple question. First, Paul Stott from the Henry Jackson Society. WikiLeaks, has it done more harm than good? I think it's done both uh, good and harm. Certainly as, a, as an academic and researcher, I've used WikiLeaks, as I think many of us have, and at times it's been invaluable. But there was always a slightly amoral element to WikiLeaks, a sort of moral ambivalence. And I think in terms of its contribution to debate, it tended to entrench existing positions rather than illuminate them. Stefani Morizzi, you've worked with WikiLeaks. I presume you'd be on the side of more good than harm. Yes, absolutely. So first of all, it's really important that I, I work as a media partner of WikiLeaks, uh, which means I, I work on their documents, verify the documents, yes. look for stories, but not for WikiLeaks, but for my newspapers. This is really important. I, I mean, th- these documents, these revelations are so important that we keep using many, nine years after these cables, uh, Afghan war logs, Iraq war logs were published, we still keep using them. Recently, with the Khashoggi murder, for example, the Washington Post used the WikiLeaks documents immediately. So they are still tremendously valuable. And if, if we look at the lives at risk, there were no lives. The, no one died. No one lost his or her life due to this publication. We know this because there was a um, um, senior counterintelligence officer who testified during the Manning trial and he was, he basically testified that no one died as a result. No, no one had any damage. And Philip de Salvo, journalism lecturer in Switzerland, more harm or good? To journalism at large, I would say the WikiLeaks has given way more good than, than harm. Uh, WikiLeaks has been a pioneer of many practices in investigative journalism that are now uh, routine. And I would only mention the use of encryption, for instance, to safely communicate with sources, which is now becoming a routinized uh, strategy within newsroom, also the most mainstream one. So in the course of his evolution, WikiLeaks has been way a uh, force of good for the vast majority of the time. And sometimes it has also shown what are the controversies and the potential limitations of its own strategies and approaches to journalism and information. And one of the controversies, of course, is the figure of Julian Assange himself. We'll talk about him later in the programme. But for now, let's look at the organisation he created, because there's no doubt that WikiLeaks became an iconic brand. But what was it like on the inside? The British journalist and author James Ball worked for WikiLeaks for three months at the height of its powers in 2010-11. I asked him to describe his initial motivation. 
I mean, it was almost sort of the rock band of journalism. Um, WikiLeaks was this new entity and it was doing something completely different. It had published information on the financial crash from Iceland. It had helped get a report that actually the BBC was injuncted against putting out. And then suddenly something on this whole new scale happened. It published first the video it titled Collateral Murder, showing sort of footage of a US helicopter gunning people down in Iraq. And then the Afghan war logs, which was tens of thousands of classified documents. And you looked at something like that and just thought, this is new. But once you started to look inside, your opinion began to change. It was honestly about eight or ten people in a room and a few sort of volunteers and hangers-on logging in remotely. And with people who are very, very strong activists in some directions. And so... Inside, you start to see the stress and the fractures, and I think that was quite forgivable. What started to worry me was the ethics of the organisation. Redaction was sort of seen as tactical. I don't think Cassandra or most people in WikiLeaks ever accepted the moral case for knocking these names out. They were really a radical transparency group, and they would see something intrinsically wrong with engaging with the US. But just to be clear, these are names of people whose lives potentially could be at threat if their names were released. Yes, especially in the Afghan and the Iraq material, there was quite a high risk that it wasn't necessarily ever saying the person was a sort of paid US contributor or something. You know, they might have talked to uh, a mayor in a small town. I think it's important to remember, you know, the Iraq war logs alone revealed how 109,000 civilians died. Uh, often in ways that had been quite heavily denied by the US government. Uh, The Afghan material revealed the existence of actual death squads running by the US military versus the US Department of Defence having admitted there's no sign of physical harm having come to a single person as a result of any of the disclosures. Do we have to weigh up this imagined blood from the risk versus what it's actually told the world? Sometimes in the public mind, it's difficult to separate the idea of Julian Assange from the idea of WikiLeaks. What was it that worried you? Was it WikiLeaks, the organisation, or was it very much this individual at the centre of the storm? I think the more the more time you spend with WikiLeaks, and I think a lot of people outside have come to see it now we've had WikiLeaks in our lives nearly a decade, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks aren't these separate entities and so one and the same yeah you can't separate his flaws and his ego from maybe we can save the organization maybe we can try and professionalize it and try and bring in safeguards when you decided to leave was it actually difficult to extricate yourself someone actually saw me and um, recommended i read a book on scientology not as anything julian had deliberately set up but You were physically remote, you had sort of enemies, you couldn't have your phone with you, you weren't seeing your family or your friends. They went, it's like being programmed in a cult. I can remember maybe about three months afterwards, having felt really conflicted and guilty about leaving and about all sorts of things, just starting to feel progressively angrier about all sorts of things that I'd witnessed. And so then there was quite an angry phase of having left. Um, so it's it's a very odd experience having been through. 
James Ball, former WikiLeaks employee, and we should tell you that we did bid to speak to somebody from WikiLeaks itself, and they were not available for this program. Stefania, you've obviously worked alongside WikiLeaks rather than inside the organisation, but listening a few minutes ago to James Ball, the concerns he began to have about the methods WikiLeaks used, do you recognise any of that concern, or were you absolutely 100% on side with them from the start? Well, of course, I acknowledge that there are problems when you get these documents, classified documents, secret documents, and uh, you realize that, first of all, it's uh, really difficult to manage these documents, both on the WikiLeaks side and on the journalistic media partner side, because, you know, it's really hard to verify secret documents. You cannot go around telling people, look, I have a secret CIA document, I have a secret Pentagon document, I need to understand whether it is genuine or it is not genuine. So I could tell you incredible stories how hard it is when you are a media partner to verify these documents. And it is also um, tricky when it comes to the ethics, what is uh, ethical to publish, what is not ethical to publish. At the same time, and I I, I have no problem to acknowledge that sometimes they did uh, Poorly. I mean, they, they, there was little content curation. The, some of the documents were published um, without uh, a proper redaction. I have no problem to say that they are definitely not perfect. At the same time, I think it took huge risk, huge legal and extra legal risk, risk that no journalist wants to take. And that's why he spent seven years in the embassy and now he's in trouble because no one was willing to take those risks. Look at the Edward Snowden story. I mean, he was there in Hong Kong and the Guardian had these wonderful scoops by Edward Snowden and they didn't help him. I'm aware that newspapers and uh, media outlets are corporations, so there is a limited risk they can afford. At the same time, I have seen how these uh, small organizations, these few people, had the guts to do what prominent news organizations didn't have the guts to do. Like okay, protect uh, I just want to bring in Paul Stott there, Stefania, just back to the Afghan and Iraq war logs. Mm. It was a good thing, wasn't it, overall, that there were these hundreds of thousands of documents. We, the public, learnt more about the structures of power which are often hidden from us. It was in the public interest for us to know what was going on in our names behind the scenes. I think some of the the details which were revealed were were news to us. I I think the the general thrust probably wasn't as revolutionary as people think. In a lot of ways, that's what we expect to happen, sadly, in conflict, in war. It's what's happened in virtually every war or every conflict that there's been, and indeed happened in some of the wars and conflicts which we venerate and which were, were vital for our own freedoms. I think there's a there's still a fundamental flaw which runs through the WikiLeaks methodology, and that's this problem really of of just dumping out enormous amounts of documents, you know, in the the tens of thousands of of pages, which, as I think has already been alluded to, you can't possibly 
edit or control. And a principle, really, of research, of journalism, should be this concept of do no harm. And I'm not sure that hand on heart, Julian Assange can say he's done no harm. Well, I want to come back to that issue in a moment of dumping material, so much material straight onto the internet. But just a reminder, you're listening to The Real Story from the BBC World Service with me, Chris Morris. And this week, we're looking at WikiLeaks and the freedom of information model that it represents. With me in the studio is Paul Stott, a research fellow from the Centre of Radicalisation and Terrorism at the Henry Jackson Society. In Rome is the campaigning journalist Stefania Morizzi, who's worked closely with WikiLeaks. And in Lugano, Philip De Salvo, a journalism lecturer and expert in hacking, whistleblowing and leaks. Later in the programme, we're going to hear from the Committee to Protect Journalists on the legal case against Julian Assange in the United States. But for now, I want to stay with these Iraq and Afghan war logs and the case of Chelsea Manning. And Stefani, you heard Paul just there worrying about the amount of material that was just dumped on the internet. In the conversations you've had with WikiLeaks, did you come across serious concern about how that material would be produced and reproduced by others once it was released? Well, I want to object to this. I mean, if we exclude some, maybe three, four publications, all the materials will was published, uh, has been published uh, using partnership with media partnership, which means that the documents are shared with the partners and the partners verified and WikiLeaks does uh, its own verifications and uh, the partners look for stories, the partners look for angles for investigation and there is uh, an exchange between partners and WikiLeaks and finally the partners publishes their stories in their newspaper or TV or radio or whatever, and WikiLeaks publishes its own documents on its website. It's really important to realize that uh, with the exception of some documents, of some releases which were actually published on the internet without any content curation, with no redactions, all the rest has been published with proper um, lengthy journalistic work. It's a very tough journalistic work. I could tell you, I mean... It has been so difficult, as I said, and uh, it doesn't make sense to say they just dump stuff on the Internet. That's not journalism. I could tell you stories about what was happening when, for example... We get the Syria files and we had these emails with stories spread in uh, um, dozens of, uh, of emails. And we were supposed to verify uh, tiny bits of information in these emails. And uh, we did. And we published important stories about, for example, the Italian defense giant Fim Meccanica providing sensitive technology to the Assad regime or even the NSA intercept world leaders like Berlusconi or three French presidents. So there is a proper journalistic work. Okay, Philip de Salvo, do you agree with that, that it is mostly proper journalistic work? Well, when WikiLeaks has operated in in different ways, as Stefania was saying, as a general rule, although this was the minority of what WikiLeaks published, uh, dumping emails or dumping files without verification and without having a real control on what's inside of that, I would be strongly against that when that happens. And when WikiLeaks did that, that are the cases where controversies were stronger and were more visible, and also the limits of this approach was clearly 
visible. So yes, I would agree that uh, the dumping of files is problematic in SE if it's done by WikiLeaks and if it's done by others. And there's also um, the question of motivation, though, isn't there? I mean, I know you you interviewed Chelsea Manning last year. What mm-hmm. what sense did you get of of her motivation for doing what she did and the work she did with with WikiLeaks? Well, in my view, Chelsea Manning is the quintessential whistleblower of our age. If you look at her motivations for contacting WikiLeaks and for giving them the documents, you can see really the idealistic and the public interest-oriented motivations that Chelsea Manning had back in the day and that she's still defending her views and her opinions and her motivation today. Uh, She has been doing that during her trial, during her detention, and now facing this new grand jury interrogation that will mostly bring her back in jail. So uh, definitely, Chelsea Manning is a whistleblower, and her motivations are those to release information that she thought were needed by the public in order to understand some of the most important geopolitical events that were going on in those years. Of course, that's Chelsea Manning. She's definitely whistleblowers, but journalists and organizations and news organizations can be contacted by other players, by other actors, whose uh, motivation can be different, can be different than those of the new organization itself. And that's a completely different scenario, and it's becoming, again, more and more common. Well, uh, Paul Stott, one of the criticisms, allegations, if you like, by governments against WikiLeaks is that the large dump of information cost lives, harmed lives, put lives under threat. Now, Stefani says that simply isn't the case. What's your view? Were lives really harmed by this release of information? Well, she would, wouldn't she? Would be uh, uh, one line to uh, to, to say that. Um, but I, have I, you got evidence to the contrary? No, and I don't think you would necessarily expect it to uh, to come to the fore because intelligence agencies will not discuss who their contacts were, who was working for them. Generally, for example, I would say both the UK and the and the US treated those who worked with us in, for example, Afghanistan quite poorly. We know many of the translators wanted to come to uh, to the UK afterwards. It wasn't safe for them to stay. We didn't allow that. We, we should have done. And equally, when you've got this big set of documents out there, people are trawling through them. They're looking for evidence. They're looking for details. They're looking to try to explain things which have happened to them from the enemy, from the opposition, from the from the Western forces. I think it's also important to recognise that putting this information out there is in a way leaving it to the world and his wife to interpret. For example, I spent a lot of time going through the Guantanamo files that they put out, the files on the various prisoners held in Guantanamo. Now, If you're going to do something like that, it needs to be qualified with the fact that this information is pretty partial. It's American intelligence sources on people who haven't had access to lawyers, for example, people who may well have been mistreated. And yes, in some cases, you could join the dots and see sometimes people who'd spent a a long time around radical jihadist organisations. Sometimes you could see the evidence was weak. But not everybody has got the skill to battle through information, to look at it critically. And um, just because you're saying everybody can be a researcher doesn't actually mean everybody can. And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, looking at WikiLeaks and the rights and wrongs of leaking secrets. Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I'd encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss a single edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts you can choose from. 
you could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at our email address, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Chris Morris, looking at WikiLeaks and its impact on journalism. We're joined by Paul Stott, a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society, by the Italian journalist Stefania Morizzi, who's worked closely alongside WikiLeaks, and by Philippe Di Salvo, a journalism lecturer based in Lugano in Switzerland. Earlier in the programme, we discussed the extraordinary impact of some of the material released by WikiLeaks from Afghanistan and Iraq, but also the criticism of some of its methods. Coming up, we'll hear more from former WikiLeaks employee James Ball and we'll look in greater detail at the US government's efforts to extradite Julian Assange and put him on trial. But first, if WikiLeaks 2010 was all about exposing US government and military activity abroad, 2016 was rather different. In a bitterly fought presidential election campaign between the Republican Donald Trump and the Democrat Hillary Clinton... WikiLeaks created a storm by releasing thousands of emails hacked from the Democratic National Committee. Julian Assange never revealed how WikiLeaks received the emails. The US intelligence community, though, has always been convinced that the hackers were working for the Russian state, intent on interfering in American democracy. Here's John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, speaking to the BBC a few months after they lost the election. As you'll hear, he believes the hacked emails did a lot of damage to the campaign and he blames the mainstream media for ignoring what he saw as the dubious purpose behind the leaks. There was a corrosive effect of the combination of the hacking, then multiplying that with fake news that were really made-up stories that were promulgated in social media. One of the things it did was it kept that whole idea of emails kind of alive at a low boil. So none of the particular emails, many of them hardly got above the radar in the mainstream media. But in the social media, there was a kind of subterranean effect. And the fact that there was substantiation that the Russians had hacked my emails, the DNC emails, that WikiLeaks was an instrument of an attempt by Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation uh, to undermine our democracy, that could have been reflected in the press, and I don't believe it was, until after the election. They knew that, and they decided that it was more interesting, maybe more titillating, to get into the kind of campaign gossip. On the day that WikiLeaks started releasing my emails, the director of national intelligence and, and the secretary of homeland security issued a statement on behalf of the entire intelligence community that the Russians were behind the hacks. Independent analysts who looked at it traced it back to the, particularly to the GRU units that were active. They seemed to feel right after the election that they were then certain of it, but they didn't really, I think, reflect that. And I think that was actually a failing on behalf of, uh, of the mainstream media and particularly, you know, some of the major news outlets. Well, it's hardly surprising that John Podesta was upset about the leak, but when I spoke to the former WikiLeaks employee James Ball earlier, 
he too struggled to see any public interest in the leak of the DNC emails. The issue with the Podesta emails is no one could really remember anything that they revealed. You know, they didn't reveal any criminal wrongdoing. There was some material in there that supporters of Bernie Sanders felt showed unfairness between the campaigns. Political campaigns acting unfairly, I don't think, gets you over the public interest to hack anything. You know, I think it was wrong to publish them. But and, they also... And in the run-up to... Yeah, especially... A very... Yeah combative presidential election in which Donald Trump won, just, timing was everything. Yes, and of course it was immensely useful to Donald Trump's campaign, and that was the intent of the people who hacked them. And Assange does have a personal animus towards Hillary Clinton over how she responded to previous links. But I think for the publisher, rather than the person who hacks them, who has just clearly committed a criminal act with no public interest defence... We've got to look at it and go, was it journalism? No, it was dumping hacked emails on the internet. Stefania Marizzi, does the link suggested very strongly from various sources between that DNC email dump and the Russian state give you any pause for thought about how you handle leaked information? Well, yes, of course, because you don't want to be a tool of people uh, who have an agenda, especially if they belong to the intelligence world. I mean, uh, in the case of the Podesta emails, I was a media partner for the Podesta emails, and uh, I could tell you that uh, basically I was alerted the day before. So it was not a last-minute release, as uh, many uh, as uh, all newspapers keep reporting. Yes, the su- suggestion that this, this leak yes. was done to divert attention from Donald exactly, Trump's own failings. Absolutely, but I can tell you, I mean, I, I don't have the truth. I can tell you only what I experience, what I witness on my side as a media partner. I was alerted the day before, so it was not a last minute decision. But even in the Podesta emails, look, it was not a campaign gossip. I understand Podesta was upset. At the same time, they exposed Hillary Clinton's speeches to Goldman Sachs. So basically what she was telling to Wall Street. Sure, there was, the there, was, there was substance in there, wasn't there? I, exactly. I, just wanted to bring, I wanted to bring Paul Stock, though, in there and ask him the same question. Is it different if leaks are made about individuals rather than states? Well, I think part of this really comes down to the, the problem of the WikiLeaks business model. That If your business is leaking, then there's going to be this constant thirst for, for getting more sets of documents. And so over time, the quality control is going to shift. It's going to fall. And whilst it, in a way, I think some of this debate is a, is a red herring. It's got tied up into the whole sort of why did Hillary lose uh, discussion, which I think should be a, should be a separate uh, question. But the danger is if you're if you're going from if you like uh, working with whistleblowers to working potentially with a foreign government uh, that and indeed a, a country that's controversial as Russia is that isn't arguably a liberal democracy that's much more problematic. Uh, Philip De Salvo, you spent a lot of time researching hacking and whistleblowing and so forth. It was inevitable, wasn't it, that state actors would look at something like WikiLeaks and think, hang on a minute, we can get in on this business. Well, uh, definitely, if we look at some patterns in the in the geopolitical movements right, right now, there are some uh, occasions where public interest has not, is not to be intended as the journalistic public interest, but as an act that interests the public. 
that's a new practice, and definitely state actors can become interested in doing. But, but I suppose that's also, my point: is does, does it matter who's released it if the release itself is of significance? If you want my opinion, if the information is genuine and we have the suspect that it can come from a state actor, it can come from a state-powered attack, but the information has some impact on the public, then it is important to publish it. But we can, as a journalist, receive documents from state actors and decide to publish some of them saying this is probably coming from state actor uh, attack. We know that this is not really public interest whistleblowing, but the content of the material is in the public concern. And so we decided to to publish them anyway. So it's and, really and, br- to, and briefly, to, would you say that, that a controlled leak, if you will, such as in the Panama Papers, is more effective, perhaps more in the public interest than the, the WikiLeaks chuck it all out there and see what happens model? Uh, I wouldn't put Panama Papers versus WikiLeaks. Generally speaking, I think that a controlled leak is the best case. This is what happened with, with, with WikiLeaks as well in most of the cases. And the Snowden case, in my view, is uh, the best case uh, scenario here, where Snowden, the source himself, decided to go out to trusted journalists in order to have them take decisions that he didn't feel to be able to take. He has always said, I'm not a journalist, I know how to take these decisions, so I leave it up to uh, to the reporter. So I think that's the best possible way. There is a, an interesting pattern as well, where some hackers go and hack surveillance companies who create uh, surveillance software and malwares and release what they get from the attacks to journalists who have the chance to expose companies who are doing dirty business with non-democratic countries. So that's also something interesting. And of course, the source is not a whistleblower. is an hacker who performs a technical attack against a company. But the outcome of the hack is in the public interest. And journalists can publish that stuff responsibly by taking very strong ethical decisions. Paul, you wanted to make a point. Yes, just very briefly on uh, on Edward Snowden, who's, who's an interesting case. But it, he again shows the ethical dilemmas here that, yes, he's putting out this interesting information. We're having a whole series of political uh, debates as as a result. But there's a limited number of countries in which you can base yourself to put out that type of information. Julian Assange eventually found the Ecuadorian embassy wouldn't uh, let him stay. What does Edward Snowden do? He's in China, then he travels to Russia. So he's releasing all this information in Russia at the same time as, for example, I think Pussy Riot, the band, were in prison. Uh, a clear civil rights abuse by the Russian state. And so again, we've got this moral uh, equivalence which, which seems to run through these debates. So there's moral difficulty, Stefania, but also, I guess, the broad issue that quantity of information doesn't always produce quality of information. Would you agree? Of course, of course, of course, of course. Uh, at the same time, we have to realise that the WikiLeaks publish really important information and uh, each time there is a major case, uh, the Khashoggi murder or a German citizen who appealed is, uh, against his uh, extraordinary rendition by the CIA, all these people use WikiLeaks materials, whereas in the case of Panama Papers, which I think it was a very good, fine piece of journalism, really important journalism, 
journalism, you don't have access to these documents. So, I mean, these documents don't empower other people. They don't empower scholars, uh, activists, uh, journalists, because no one has access to them. So, I mean, I realize that publishing massive databases uh, uh, creates problems. At the same time, try to get this information through the Freedom of Information Act. There, there is no way. I mean, there is absolutely no way. I mean, as we speak, a new drone whistleblower was uh, arrested, was charged with the Espionage Act, but try to get any accountability and oversight on the drone wars. I'm not sure if you know that two years ago, uh, the family of the victims uh, of Ye in Yemen basically went to a U.S. court to appeal their case, and basically the judge uh, dismissed their case, but the judge was uh, very open about the fact that there is no oversight. They, they, she even uh, wrote, congressional oversight is a joke. Democracy is broken. It's really important to, to realize this. Okay, and this is a reminder you're listening to The Real Story with me, Chris Morris. We're discussing WikiLeaks, journalism, and the ethical issues raised by dumping large amounts of material on the internet. But I want to focus now on the man at the centre of the storm, Julian Assange, and in particular on the efforts to extradite him to the United States. Assange is a complex character who divides opinion. Some see him as a bit of a hero, others as a man guilty of espionage. But the charge against him is actually quite technical. He's accused of violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act through his collaboration with Chelsea Manning, a conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. A short while ago, I asked Courtney Radge, the advocacy director of the Committee to Protect Journalists in Washington, D.C., to explain the significance of the charge. I think the significance of that is essentially he was charged with hacking into a database, um, which is a crime. And of course, journalists are not free to break the law. Um, but I think that this idea of committing a computer intrusion and going after somebody internationally for a computer crimes act that was committed several years ago uh, looks a little bit concerning. It also, the allegation in the indictment does go beyond hacking and sweeps in other activities. But essentially, he's charged with one uh, charge, which is violating the Computer Crimes Act. And that's a law which is rarely used against journalists, isn't it? So you, there is a suspicion that there is more at stake here. This is a way to get him into the country, but then other things might unfold. What we're concerned about is whether additional charges might be added, especially something related to, for example, the Espionage Act. I think we are wondering whether this is a punitive action or whether, you know, this shows the possibility that there is selective prosecution being used. And you're the advocacy director for the Committee to Protect Journalists. Do you regard Julian Assange as a journalist? You know, I think that trying to get into labels is challenging and, you know, people can be journalists, they can be publishers. And it also, you know, WikiLeaks and Julian Assange have been in the business for many years. And I think that there are, you know, different instances. I think what we're focused on rather than whether someone deserves the label of journalist or not is whether the acts involved were journalistic and whether the uh, prosecution and charges sought will have a chilling impact on press freedom and on journalistic activity. And what we see in this indictment 
is that some you know normal journalistic activities such as um, talking to sources, soliciting information, working to protect the identity of confidential sources, all practices that are in integral to the news gathering process and the publication of information in the public interest are construed in the indictment as part of a conspiracy. So it's really about the acts and how they're being portrayed and what the impact that might have on journalists, on people who would like to engage in acts of journalism or publication. That was Courtney Raj, the Advocacy Director of the Committee to Protect Journalists, and Paul Stott here in the studio. You're from the Henry Jackson Society. It would be troubling, would it not, if the case against Julian Assange were to lead to a crackdown on journalism in general? Potentially, yes. Um, I think we... Why only potentially? Um, well, we don't know what uh, the case exactly is going to be, uh, as we've, we've just heard uh, in, in, the, in the clip there. Um, it isn't particularly clear to me exactly what we're saying WikiLeaks is or what we're saying Julian Assange is. Is he a journalist? Is he a publisher? Is he uh, the source for this intelligence? And actually, to take things back a step... I think at the time I felt slightly uncomfortable that you had Chelsea Manning tried, convicted, jailed, whilst those who'd uh, received the information uh, from her, absolutely nothing was was done to. So there's a there's a broader element of social justice. There's also the chance really to, to put this issue to bed and to get some clarification really on what the legal and moral rights and wrongs are. And to an extent, that's the downside of what Julian Assange has been doing in recent years, is that debate hasn't happened. Now we can have it properly. Let's get it all out in the open, get it sorted once and for all. Stefania Maurizzi in Rome, what do you think the future of Julian Assange means for the freedom of the press? I think his case is crucial. I mean, uh, the whole WikiLeaks case is crucial because uh, it is about publishing uh, classified information about exposing war crimes, exposing human rights violations, exposing mass surveillance, uh, surveillance on on war leaders, uh, exposing the cyber espionage companies like hacking team and uh, doing this safely in our democracy. I, I don't want to live in a society where to reveal abuses by the CIA or by the Pentagon, I have to escape to Russia I, I or I have to go to jail as uh, Chelsea Manning did. I don't want to uh, take refuge in an Embassy. I want to live in a society when, uh, where a, a journalist, uh, a publisher, an editor, ca- call him as you want, can do this safely without uh, destroying his own life. I mean, but isn't it's the, isn't the problem with Julian Assange and WikiLeaks is that he is, if you like, a freedom of information fundamentalist? It is. It is publish and be damned, no matter what the consequences. Should there not be more curation of the information? As I said, curation. I mean, if I mean, I have been there for the last ten years. I saw what happened. I mean, uh, they have published millions of documents, and only in seven occasions, only with seven releases, they there was very little uh, content curation. But for example, even the hacking team. If you take the hacking team emails, they were just dumped on the internet. You would say, but. Those documents are tremendously important. The Washington Post just used them for the 
Khashoggi for investigating the Khashoggi uh, murder. So, I mean, I think it is a, it is a um, kind of dirty war against Julian Assange. We are discussing uh, uh, victims that never were. I mean, we are not discussing the tens of thousands people abused, killed, tortured by these uh, entities, which have no oversight. I mean, there is no oversight on these people, as I said. So I think we are focusing on uh, on the wrong uh, issues rather than realizing how crucial it is that you can publish this information and you can do it safely without uh, sacrificing your life. Not only Julian Assange, but take, for example, Sarah Harrison, the journalist who went to Hong Kong to help Edward Snowden. I mean, she's at exceptional risk, very serious risk of ending in jail. I mean, just for helping a source who did so, who exposed uh, the NSA mass surveillance for idealistic reasons. Philip DeSalvo, Stefani talks of a dirty war against Julian Assange. What, what do you think the implication of the legal battle against him is for other players who've perhaps been inspired by WikiLeaks who are looking to get into this this business of releasing vast amounts of information. Where where is this going to, going to go forward? Well, I totally share the view of the Committee to Protect Journalists in this in this sense. The Justice Department considers problematic the fact that Assange and Manning were trying to obfuscate and protect their, their own communication. And I mean that's purely what happens. Uh, within the relationship between a source and a journalist most of the times. So we, we should really, really, really take these charges with uh, with attention and, and, and danger. And I also share other things that were said by the other speakers that we still don't know what the final outcome of that would be. If more Espionage Act charges will be put on paper, that would be extremely complicated. And the Espionage Act has become now a routinized legal tool to be used against whistleblowers. And that's really really, really problematic because you have this equivalence between journalism and whistleblowing and espionage, which are different things. So I'm afraid we are going to see more stories like those of Edward Snowden, Chelsea Manning and the others who were charged in the same way in a very untransparent and dangerous way for everybody involved in whistleblowing-led journalism. Paul Stott, I don't know what you, you feel about that. I mean, obviously, WikiLeaks has been around since 2006. Where do you think things are going? Where do you think this debate will be in 10 years' time? I think that's a hard thing to to predict. A lot may well hang uh, on this case in terms of the particular model that WikiLeaks has developed. You know, what could possibly follow WikiLeaks, when it's been so dominated by Assange himself, you know, in a way, this has become quite a a personality driven organisation. That's unfortunate because there are obviously some substantive issues here which need to be discussed. But unless we have some form of moral framework within which to to discuss them, uh, a moral framework to critique government policy, but also a moral framework which asks questions of the whistleblowers themselves. And that's one of the dangers with this debate, that we we forget that. Stefano Marizzi in Rome, what, what do you think? Where are we heading um, with this kind of model of journalism and, and information release? 
We see this model now widespread. I mean, leaks are everywhere. There are submission platforms uh, has been adopted by all sorts of media organizations. It's a different technology than the WikiLeaks technology, but the concept is the very same concept introduced, pioneered by WikiLeaks. The multi-jurisdictional cooperations between media to publish documents is now everywhere. The ICIJ used uh, this model for Panama Papers and many other important scoops. What is really sad now is to realize the huge price that uh, organizations like WikiLeaks and the whistleblowers are, are paying because, you know, the journalists good get scoops, the media outlets get scoops, and these people maybe end up in the U.S. Uh, in prison for life or they have to escape to Russia. This is uh, a real ethical problem for me. I mean, I cannot accept this. When people inside the U.S. intelligence complex leak information for books, for films, movies, and so on, they don't get charged with the Espionage Act. So, I mean, it's a travesty of justice. And for me and for other journalists, it's an ethical problem that we don't get jail, we don't get troubles, but they do. Well, as you've all said, we have to see where the Assange case ends up. Uh, but Philip DeSalvo, finally and briefly, however strong the urge to keep secrets might be, are we not in an age when technology is in many ways going to enable people for good or for ill to stay one step ahead? Information will come out, come what may? I think we should acknowledge that leaks are going to stay. Encryption in this context is crucial to protect both journalists and their own sources. Although 100% security doesn't exist, it is crucial that reporters and newsrooms start adopting these tools, start adopting these strategies in order to make a better work when it comes to source protection at large. But let me also add that whistleblowing at large is a symptom of a broken system. When there is kind of a bottleneck of of secrecy, where it's very, very difficult for citizens and journalists to access information uh, that is held by institutions that should and probably be there. Overclassification is a huge problem in the US and in many other countries. So until we don't have better strategies, legal strategies, less radical strategies than whistleblowing to access public interest information that is held by powerful institutions, being them public or private, we will definitely need more whistleblowers to, to come forward. And if we look at the datafied society, the digital society at large, most of its own dynamics are now secrets. The powers of algorithms, the powers of technology in deciding how the public sphere is structured. I envision, although I don't definitely endorse it in any cases, until we, we don't have stronger and safer and more legal and more encouraged ways to access public interest information, whistleblowers will be definitely needed by both journalism and, and citizens. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thanks to our guests, Paul Stott here in London, Stefania Morizzi in Rome and Philip De Salvo in Lugano. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on the programme. You can email us at therealstory.com at bbc.co.uk. From me, Chris Morris, and the team, that's The Real Story for this week. Thanks for listening.